Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Peter's first epistle, book of 1 Peter, this morning. And we're continuing now, before we begin our little holiday series, this question that we proposed last time, where is God? And hopefully I'll set out to answer that for you today. Where is God, particularly where is God in the midst of suffering? We're addressing, as you know, the problem of evil, the alleged problem of evil that critics, philosophers, atheists have presented. It is not a new problem that they have presented but one that has been dealt with over the ages and has even been addressed throughout the pages of Scripture. But it was in AD 60 when Paul wrote this letter, letter of 1 Peter, to Christians that uh, were spread throughout the Roman Empire. This letter would have been written... In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, would have been what is now called Turkey. And the emphasis, the, the infamous Emperor Nero of Rome had now been in power since AD 54, so for about six years now. And it was obvious that a thick darkness was quickly enveloping the church. Christians had come to know suffering and persecution very well, including the author of this letter, at the hands of both Gentiles and Jews. In fact, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians around the year 55 to 57, he commented in chapter 11 that he had experienced countless imprisonments and was beaten times without number. He had lost count often himself in danger of death simply because of his labor in the gospel ministry. Of course, Paul would eventually lose his life along with the rest of the apostles, with the exception of John, who died of old age in exile. And Peter, too, experienced suffering, tremendous suffering and imprisonment for the gospel, and he would also die a martyr's death a few short years after writing 1 Peter. And that would be, of course, after watching his own beloved wife's crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, a woman who was described as a woman of grace, a humble servant, according to church history, exemplary in every way as a Proverbs 31 kind of woman, content to be a faithful, loving wife supporting her 
husband's ministry in whatever way she could. And he, he would see her crucified before himself being crucified upside down. And according to most scholars and scientists and so forth, he would have experienced an excruciating death that way, even as the cross normally would have been a very painful and slow death. But his lungs would collapsed much to the same typical way, and he would die as of asphyxiation. And so already there was a widespread hostility, though, at the time that he pens this letter. And it was growing, but by the year 8064, within just a few years of writing this, the first widespread official persecution would begin after the great fire of Rome, and uh, that would begin on one hot July day. That fire would very quickly go completely out of control sweep through and destroy about half the entire city of Rome. And and the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this about the fire. First, the fire swept violently over the level spaces. Then it climbed the hills, but returned to ravage the lower ground again. It outstripped every countermeasure, terrified, shrieking women, helpless, old and young, people intent on their own safety, people unselfishly supporting invalids or waiting for them. Fugitives and lingerers alike all heightened the confusion. Of course, it's a well-known fact that that uh, the blame for the fire was quickly placed on the shoulders of the emperor, Emperor Nero, who was much less likely playing the fiddle as he watched his city burn. The rumor spread after a number of citizens who were trying to put out the fire reported that city officials came and stopped them or tried to stop them from putting out the fire. And others who were city officials amidst the crowds were actually relighting or lighting unburned sections of the city with torches. And the fire burned for nine days. And at first, Nero, when he arrived, because Nero was conveniently not in this city where his palace itself had burned at the time when the fire began, he came to the city and he showed some semblance of concern. He organized firefighters and and set up shelters for the now homeless, the many homeless, but the fire still took many, many lives, and that didn't help the blame that he would take for the fire. Nero was extremely frustrated, and this was a well-known fact throughout Rome. He was extremely frustrated by his inability, because of the landlocked nature of the city, to build new construction, new buildings that would um, sort of establish his name in Roman history. He had all these elaborate building projects that he wanted to do, that he had planned for the city, And many saw this as his solution to the lack of space. Just burn the city and start over. Whether or not that was just circumstantial or whether it was true, we don't really know. But what we do know is that Nero, of course, immediately set the blame on Christians to get the attention off himself. The plan wouldn't have worked so well if there wasn't already a deep-seated animosity for Christians. And so that's when official persecution of the church began. Or persecution of the church became a state policy. And although the persecution of these faithful believers whom Paul had written his great letter to, in the book of Romans, 
as well as the author of Hebrews, were only officially persecuted in that city. The gloves came off throughout the entire empire. And what unfolded was a widespread persecution of the church that was just unleashed around the world. And you know how that went. Christians were readily rounded up and they were arrested. Many were thrown to wild animals, torn apart. Others suffered all kinds of other gruesome deaths. Others were dipped in wax or tar to be lit. And they would serve as torches burned alive to light Nero's gardens and the city streets. Others were crucified publicly, such as Peter himself. And so Peter is writing to Christians in what is, what is now in Turkey, as we said, just a few short years, and maybe what would just amount to be one election term away. And he is in Rome, watching firsthand this rising hostility, writing to Christians in Turkey. And that's when he writes these surprising words in this letter. And it is in that context. And it is surprising because he writes to Christians to instruct them how they should respond to suffering. And as Christians, how they should deal with suffering. And in this context, deep suffering at the hands of those who are persecuting them. Now, he doesn't tell them given the tyranny, to start a revolution. That's not their duty as Christians. Or protest the government. Or even to rebuke them. He doesn't tell them to run and hide. He doesn't, try to t- he doesn't tell them to even alleviate the suffering in some way. It isn't that that would be problematic, but that isn't Peter's concern. He doesn't even tell them to pray for deliverance from their suffering. And this is coming from the same guy who 30 years before drew his sword before the Roman army to try to cut off the head of a servant in order that his Lord might have time to escape the Garden of Gethsemane. So this zealous man who tries to protect the Christ with a sword is now telling the church how they should respond to suffering and injustice. And interestingly, it is not with the sword. How do we respond to suffering? He gives the purest, most simple, God-exalting response. And he reminds them in the very opening verses that they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. According to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, they had been called out of the world to obey Jesus Christ in their suffering. It's remarkable 
remember in your suffering to obey Jesus Christ. And to us, that maybe sounds at this point, this juncture in their lives, a little bit insensitive, unloving, maybe even a little uncaring, and, and perhaps harsh. Because most of us would probably find in our suffering an excuse to not obey the Lord, in our suffering an excuse for sin. Now, we do that all the time. Even our little trivial kind of suffering that we might experience. You know, a wife snaps at her husband, and she responds, I'm sorry, you just wouldn't believe the headache I have. The children have been screaming all day, and I just could not wait for you to get home, and you got tied up in holiday traffic. You wouldn't believe the headache I have. We blame our trivial little suffering. Or husbands maybe uh, would snap at their wives upon arriving home and quickly retort, I'm sorry, you would not believe the kind of day I had at work. I'm just so stressed. And so we blame our suffering as an excuse for sin. And we could go on with all kinds of examples of the way we might do that. You might be wondering why I would begin that way when we're supposed to be answering what many have referred to as the problem of evil, like we said. But I want you to understand from the very beginning what our Lord's expectations are for us in our suffering. And I want you to see, even if by just one example in the Scriptures, how the problem of evil is presented as no problem at all in the Scriptures. How Christ's expectations for you don't change because of your suffering. The problem of evil poses no threat to Peter, and there has to be a reason why. And if you paid attention, Peter actually tells us why the problem of evil should pose no threat to us either. Listen to the grace in Peter's exhortation, in the character of God that strengthens our faith rather than weakens it in our suffering. And this is why we are still to follow Him in our obedience. Verse 3, pay attention to the character of God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just answered the question, why is there evil? 
Why is there suffering? So that you may be tested. And that testing may find the result in praise and glory and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, Peter continues, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like, and mark this, the Holy One. I love that name for God. What does that preserve? What is that an affirmation of in the context of the suffering servants Of Jesus Christ, who love him and whom he loves. How about his justice, his righteousness? He is the Holy One who called you. And be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So yes, an exhortation to be unwavering, an exhortation to be steadfast, an exhortation to be faithful, an exhortation to be obedient, an exhortation to be holy amidst our trials and suffering, because why? Because of what we know about God and that He is benevolent, He is good, He is all-knowing, merciful, and wise. He is a holy God. You need to remember that because it's in the character of God that we find our answer to the so-called problem of evil. And I call it so-called because it really isn't a problem for the believer. The problem of evil is only a problem for the unbeliever. Remember the problem of evil has been presented to us in a number of ways as the final trump card, as the ace in the hole that is supposed to leave us stumped and without an answer and bewildered and in doubt 
regarding the character of God. If God is just, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Is one way to construct the question. And of course, we we did in fact deconstruct that problem last time. And if you weren't here for the answer, uh, you'll just have to go back and listen to that message online. Because remember, good assumes innocence, doesn't it? In fact, not only does good assume innocence, it assumes righteousness. But it is impossible. That is impossible because if there's anything that we know about justice is that it only takes one violation of the law to be declared guilty. And we all know that every one of us is ultimately guilty of transgressing God's law. So not only are none of us innocent, none of us are good. And if you deny then the existence of God, then you're still guilty because wherever you get the concept of morality from, good and evil, you haven't perfectly abided by your own standard. So, so God doesn't exist, and I'll declare my innocence. I'll declare my righteousness. Well, really, have you perfectly kept your own standard of righteousness? Have you perfectly, harmoniously abided by the law of your conscience? Have you transgressed it just once? Then you're no longer innocent. You are guilty. And so then, if God is just, why does he allow bad things to happen to guilty people? To bad people. People who are in deserve... Deserving of judgment. But the problem of evil has been presented in other ways. If God exists and God is benevolent, He is good, all-knowing and wise, why does He allow evil and suffering in the world? Or to make it a bit more personal, why does He allow bad things to happen to those who love Him? Why does He allow bad things to happen to his children. This is the problem. That as we quoted from Eli Wiesel last Sunday, who wrote in his book called Night, which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. And of course, where Wiesel found his strength was in becoming the accuser, he says, and God the accused. In other words, Weasel put God on trial, which is a dangerously arrogant game when we are by our own honest confession guilty and the clear testimony of Scripture is that God is holy and perfect and just. So here we are, condemned, self-acclaimed judges, accusing the God who is holy and perfect and just. Where do you think this is going to end? The finite and guilty are in no position to accuse the infinite, holy, and good God. God is not on trial, as we said. We are not in the position of being the accusers. 
And since God is not on trial, he is also not in need of our rescue. Scriptures never present God that way. And because of that, we find so many of contemporary Christianity's answers woefully inadequate to address the problem of evil because those answers are trying to rescue God as though he were on trial. Now we're playing the unregenerate scheme. We're pretending that God is in court when he's not in court. Ultimately, whenever we do that, we create some other God who is a lesser being than God presented in the Scripture. Most common answer, for instance, in Arminianism, posits our freedom as the highest possible moral virtue that transcends all other moral virtues. Human autonomy, that is the greatest moral good. It's a sentimental approach to the problem of evil because a God who is sovereign over evil and who even ordains it, who decrees it, and who is sovereign over our salvation is a God that some people just don't want to deal with. And so they reinvent God who isn't ultimately sovereign but is subject to man's choice. The greatest thing that God could ever done, the greatest moral good that he could have ever given to you is the sovereignty of your own choice. And so God now is subject to that. He is subservient to that. And to create the world, he had to give us complete autonomy, complete free will, because that is the greatest virtue of all virtues. So God is subject. God is ultimately subject to our freedom. Did you hear that? See how that makes less of God? He is hopelessly bound to whatever mankind chooses to do. And unfortunately, because mankind chooses to do evil, God can only respond to whatever we decide to do. Of course, not only is that position found nowhere in Scripture, either autonomy or free will is never posited in any sense as some kind of virtue, let alone the greatest virtue. But Arminianism still fails to vindicate God, even if it were true. God still set everything in motion. God still created, knowing that man would choose evil. And God is helpless because we have to have our autonomy. That's not at all comforting to know that we have a helpless God that is now subject to what we decide to do and he's no longer in control over the evil of this world because he's subject to the evil that we decide to do in this world. And it's somewhat baffling that some would choose a God who is out of control of evil rather than a God who is completely in control of it. Or if he is in control, then he refuses to act because that would infringe our free will. It's ridiculous. If I see my child, this happens relatively often it seems, doing something dangerous, 
the last concern on earth that I have for my child's well-being at that point is the preservation of their autonomy. That doesn't even cross my mind as a moral dilemma. It doesn't cross yours either. When you see somebody who's about to, to ignorantly cause themselves great harm, you immediately respond to action. You impose on their will. You impose on their autonomy. You interrupt their course of life to rescue them, to save them. You're not going to take into consideration how you infringe on their freedom. Because you recognize that there is something more important here. And freedom isn't the highest morality. Same is true of God in His relationship to us. And remember the problem of evil or theodicy, the defense of God's righteousness. That's what theodicy is referring to. The defense of God's righteousness is not a matter of making God palatable. That's not what this is. But so often in these arguments to try to fail in defending God, They don't try to fail. They do fail in trying to defend God. That's what they do. They they are trying to make God palatable to those who reject him. And that is not theodicy. Theodicy is not a matter of making God palatable. We have to understand that. Theodicy is not a matter of making God palatable for our finite, fallen minds. I don't say that to minimize the reality of evil or suffering in any sense. Trivialize our suffering. Pain and suffering are realities of this world, as quoted from Job in Job chapter 5, as sparks fly upward. It is a constant. It is sure. This life will have suffering. To minimize or trivialize suffering has been another unbiblical answer to the problem of evil, trivialize the reality of suffering. And Arminianism in its own way does that too. By positing autonomy as the greatest good, as if to say, well, this is the cost of our free will, but it's worth that. So keep your suffering in perspective. As long as you have your free will, all your suffering that you might experience in this life is well, it's, it's, it's not that great compared to the freedom of autonomy. It doesn't really help much, does it? In fact, I would subject that it doesn't really help at all in our suffering, to be told your suffering is worth it so that you can have autonomy. And it actually undercuts the existence of God. Philosophers, atheists, those who reject God have used theodicy to allegedly prove that the God of the Bible does not exist. However, we'll start here. It is because evil exists. And when we speak of the word evil, we're going to speak of it in the context of of mankind's rebellion, evil acts that we might do, or even natural evils. Whatever it is that causes suffering in this life, and it is because evil exists that we know the God of the Scriptures 
does exist. Okay? So you write that down. You start there. Someone poses to you the problem of evil. What problem is there? Don't you know that it is because evil exists that we know God exists? That's where we begin to answer the problem of evil. We already know that God exists. If you were here on Wednesday night, you understand how we defended that all men ultimately know that God exists from Scriptures. Romans 1. Maybe you've never considered before that merely presenting the problem of evil, though, by, by presenting it, rather, skeptics have proven the existence of God. We remember last Sunday we said that Manichaeanism is another fallacious argument that is built off the yin-yang metaphysical theodicy. And if you don't remember what those terms mean, that's okay. But basically, it comes down to this. Evil must exist because God exists, which is absurd. Evil does not have to exist just because God exists. But understand the difference between saying evil must exist because God exists and saying evil can only exist because God exists. So, therefore, what does that mean? It means if you present the problem of evil, then you consent to the fact that evil exists, and you can only consent to the fact that evil exists if God exists. Because without God, there is no evil. And if there is no evil, there's no problem. In order to admit the reality that evil exists, they require the existence of God because, again, there can be no evil if there is no God. And I'll show you that, but you'll have to bear with me as we become a little bit apologetic. And so let's start with what is evil. Now, before we can get any further, I'll borrow a little bit from R.C. Sproul, who points back to the presidential, well, it depends on what your definition of is, is. Well, you might define evil in this way. Evil is not. Evil is not. Not in the Christian Scientology sense, which denies the existence of evil and is neither Christian nor science. But in the sense that evil is its own autonomous substance, it has, it's not metaphysical. It has uh, no substance of its own. We'll typically think of evil as that being its own substance, but evil isn't its own substance. It can't exist by itself. It can't ontologically exist, you might have heard it said. Ontological is a philosophical term. Uh, what it means is that it has no being in and of itself. So evil cannot be created Evil is not something you make. 
Evil can only be defined by what it is not. And that's how we see evil described in the Scriptures. Namely, evil is the absence of good. And that's why we hear the words repeatedly in Scriptures, speaking of evil, words like ungodly, unrighteous, or injustice. So evil can't be known by itself. Even if we think in the context of natural evils, impersonal evils that plague our world, diseases, plagues, and disasters, that too can only be understood by what isn't rather than by what is. It is only because we have a comprehension for a right world that we can recognize that something is wrong with it. And if you ask why that's important, this will help. In a book titled Brothers Karamazov, the author records all these horrible atrocities of the former Soviet Union, and he tells of many accounts that he'd witnessed of those who loved to torture children simply because they got lit off their complete helplessness. Abusing the helpless gave them a sense of power as the weak cried out and begged that they would stop their artistic cruelty. And so the author writes, uh, telling of this one account, there was a little girl of five who was hated by her father and mother. You see, it is a peculiar characteristic of many people, this love of turning children, and children only. It's just their defenselessness that tempts the tormentor. Just the angelic confidence of the child who has no refuge and no appeal that sets his vile blood on fire. This poor child of five was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty, shut her up all night in the cold, and frost in an outhouse. And because she didn't ask to be taken up at night, they smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother, her mother, who did this. And that mother could sleep hearing her child's groans. Those kinds of accounts provoke in all of us an indignant rage It provokes us to cry out for justice, to demand justice, and rightfully so, because we take evil seriously. But if you deny the existence of God, then there is no cause for indignation because there is no evil. There is no evil because there is no good. There just is. There is a state of existence, but there is no good. Without God, people usually define good as whatever evokes their approval. I suppose like the extermination ovens found in Nazi Germany that had Hitler's approval. Or the approval found in the abuse hurled by that five-year-old girl's parents. Is that what we're talking about? So good 
become subjectively defined at best, and we can't preserve justice when morality is defined subjectively. The same thing happens, by the way, when we define what is good by what provides collective happiness for the greatest number of people, as if that were calculable anyway. But supposing it were calculable, how do we know if what makes the greatest number of people happy is itself good? What if it is a terrible thing that makes the greatest number of people happy? What if the poor, the far greater number than the rich, determined that it would make them happy to eradicate the rich? Does that make it good? See, if good is defined by the absence of a fixed standard of righteousness, And that's a world we can't really live in. But there is no fixed standard of righteousness. There is no explanation for morality without God. So logically speaking, the problem of evil turns out really just to be a problem for the unbeliever. Because he can't show, as the apologist Greg Bonson said that his judgments about the existence of evil are meaningful. However, what is our experience? Our experience with believers and unbelievers is that both insist that certain atrocities are objectively evil. They are not subjectively evil. It's obvious that certain things are not a matter of personal opinion or collective opinion or subjective at all. Things like rape or child abuse are always wrong, regardless of the context, aren't they? So evil can only truly exist because God exists. And so the problem that people have with the existence of God when confronted with evil and suffering is not a logical one, but an emotional one. It's not a matter of whether or not God and evil coexist, but how can God who is good and who is sovereign permit evil? We want to stand in judgment of God and blame Him because we can't reconcile those two things. We assume that simply because God permits evil, he must be either impotent or himself evil. But this is why the answer to the problem of evil can't be a short one, because the testimony of Scripture is that he needs no defense for what he does. But the testimony of Scripture is also that he is always good and always just. And we need to take the time to show that. We can't do it this morning. But that is the result of studying the Scriptures. If you go all the way back, though, to Genesis chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, actually. You know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we might, that's where the fall occurs. Satan comes and tempts Eve in the garden. And we might ask then, uh, well, if, um, if God knew 
that Satan would tempt Eve and then she would come and bring the fruit to Adam and they would fall, why did God create Satan? Why did he do that? And if God foreordained that Adam and Eve would fall, how can he be just to punish them? And that's the very first time that we actually see mankind blaming God for the problem of evil. When Adam says, it was the woman whom you made me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. You did this, God but I'm not to blame. Adam accuses. And God offers no rationale for his defense because he is not the accused. Adam was the one who sinned, and God curses Adam for his sin. Then you move over a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 2, and God tells Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, his beloved son Isaac, And that makes no sense whatever. And we might wonder how that can be reconciled with the goodness of God. We say, well, of course, uh, God provided a substitute and stopped Abraham from actually killing his son, so uh, God is spared. God turns to be righteous in the end. But shows in Isaac a type of Christ. Foreshadows the image of Christ that would be revealed in the Scriptures, in in the New Testament Gospel. Abraham's anguish wasn't preserved. And how does God justify that? Some kind of cruel trick? To leave Abraham in such anguish as he ascends the mountain? Abraham never addresses it. He doesn't accuse God. Abraham isn't threatened by God's goodness and merciful grace because of what God told him to do. Instead, he worships God. And God commends Abraham for his resolute, faithful obedience, his submission to God's will, even when that will is hard. We could look at countless other examples, but what we repeatedly find is that God never defends himself, but rather that God persistently claims the sovereign right to be trusted and to be believed because he is good, righteous, and just. And when we can't seem to explain his character with his actions, he is not obliged to explain them to us. But we are called to trust in the testimony of His Word that whatever He does is always good. In fact, that was what Job discovered, who suffered anguish and suffering like, unlike any man who ever lived apart from Christ. And when Job demands an answer, he finally comes to ask God, why do you do this? He, he puts God in the position of being the accused. He poses to God the problem of evil for his actions imposed on him. And God's response in Job chapter 38 is this, now gird up your loins like a man. And I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Point is obvious. God reminds Job of how truly ignorant and dependent he is on the mercies of God. And if he is so ignorant just in regard to the natural world which God created, then how can he possibly understand the mind of God in distributing good and evil? Your mind is too punitive to get this. How will it understand that? And Job responds to that by repenting and claiming to know more than he actually knew. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 25, God tells Israel, You say the way of the Lord is not just? Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? God's ways are always just, even when we can't understand them. That's mere recognition of our finiteness, and that's a major theme, in fact, in the book of Romans. Paul asks in Romans chapter 9, there is no injustice with God, is there? And is there not sufficient testimony in the Scriptures for us to conclude that God is just that? He is just. There is no injustice at all in Him. Verse 20, oh man, who answers back to God? Just prior to that, actually in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul reminded us that he works all things together for good, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And what we fail to consider is perhaps the greatest good is not your free will. Perhaps the greatest good is not your pleasure. Perhaps the greatest good is not your autonomy, but perhaps the greatest good is the glory of God. That God's name would be made known among the nations, and that His character would be exemplified in our suffering. And he uses our suffering for his glory. Even the greatest evil the world has ever known, God uses for his glory. Paul even asks in Romans chapter 3, verse 5, if our unrighteousness, our rebellion against God, the worst kind of evil, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So our evil rebellion brilliantly displays something of the character of God. His righteousness. Israel's constant rebellion against God shows something of His character, His faithfulness. They prove His faithfulness. And so God is sovereign. And he has willed the existence of both good and evil for his own glory. Proverbs 16 verse 4 says, Even the wicked for the day of disaster show his justice. Isaiah 45 7 says, I the Lord do all of these things. 
He is greater beyond our comprehension. And we can't even fathom the work that he does. But does that make God responsible for evil? By no means. By no means. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Paul asks this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So there again, God put ups and tolerates with evil and suffering in this world. What if, Paul proposes, so that he might show his character? Make his power known. Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches, here it is again, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Some translations will translate verse 22 as determined. What if God determined, and it is, a, it is a middle voice verb, which means what if God determined for himself, for his glory, that you should suffer? That there should be even appointed for him those who are evil, that he foreordained, such as Pharaoh, before the foundations of the earth for destruction. in order that he might show his patience, in order that he might show his salvation for those who would believe the gospel by faith. What if? And so does God not have the right to do that? You say, well, God has no right to exalt himself at my expense. God has no right to be exalted, then who does? God certainly does have the right to be exalted. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God is wise. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. Why should he not be exalted? He is great. He is sovereign. He is the only God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He must be exalted. And so he reserves every right to exalt his name. And he is not responsible for evil. God decrees evil in the world, but it by no means makes him the author of sin. And so we are still responsible. He preserves his righteous and good and just character. He is not responsible for evil any more than parents who, in a sense, create a child with full knowledge that their child will experience the greatest uh, kind of suffering and hardship and heartbreak and death in this life. We might not know the measure or the degree or the frequency of suffering, but we know we have, we have a sovereign knowledge that there will be suffering, don't we? Are they to blame then? Because they created the child? even with full knowledge of those things? And in full knowledge of those things, determined that they would still have a child for their own glory. So that they might show compassion, and so that they might show love, and wisdom, and grace, and mercy, and generosity. 
Does that make them criminally selfish? Are you morally responsible for the suffering that they would experience? Are you justifiably to blame? Or is the death and suffering that was brought into the world because of sin to blame? Unbelievers will recognize that they're not to blame, but they can't explain why. So why do we then blame God? Isn't that hypocrisy? Unless we also blame parents and make them culpable for their child's anguish. And if we say, of course not, because of the revealed character of the child's parents, why wouldn't we also consent the same for God? God is not responsible, and we know that for sure because of the revealed character of God. And where is that revelation found? It's found in His Word. Why does God cause these things to happen? We're content to say with Cornelius Van Til that God is His own theodicy. He is all-sufficient to Himself. He seeks the manifestation of His own glory. God does not need our little fences for His protection. We need not be afraid of the scriptural statements. And we find great comfort there. Because God has also seen fit for the sake of His own glory that He would offer salvation and redemption for humanity who've rebelled against Him and who are responsible for pain and suffering in this world. Because death has been brought through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. And so for those who believe in Him and confess Him as Lord, if you're still in 1 Peter 1, look at it again, will you? I want to read this again. But emphasize the great gift that the Lord gives according to His mercy. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can that be in our suffering? Who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for, your, for salvation, ready to be revealed to you in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving them themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And let me tell you something, that was penned by the man to whom Christ said, behold, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. And he said, well, don't do it because you are sovereign and you are good. No. Christ allowed Satan to sift Peter like wheat and yet preserved him. And Peter, having been sifted, having experienced pain and suffering, was now in a wonderful position to preach the gospel to you. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves. Let's close in prayer. Precious Father, there is so much that we cannot comprehend about your works, which you continue to do in this world. But one thing we know is that the constant testimony of your works shows us how wonderful and majestic and praiseworthy you are, deserving of our highest exaltation and praise. And Lord, may you be exalted in our suffering. And may we use our suffering for your glory and rejoice in our suffering. And in our suffering, preach the gospel. Make your name great. Allow us to remember that you will reward greatly those who place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as the only one who was innocent and righteous and perfect for our sin. By believing, by believing we might have life and life eternal. We ask these things in your Son's name. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website 
If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.